Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning. You'll find in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, reading through chapter 3, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, through chapter 3, verse 3. Now hear the word of the Lord. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death, And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the light or in the sight of God in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Our gracious Father, we confess that we are unable to understand or discern those things which are spiritual unless the Spirit of God himself gives us that perception. And so now we ask the Spirit of God would fall fresh upon us and open our eyes that we can see, in our ears that we can hear, and with hearts we can understand. Lord, bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness that would glorify your name and send us away from here this day with greater energy, energized to do the will of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Dr. Gary Bukamp, a taste and smell researcher at Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, says about our sense of smell... It's estimated that the number of odors that someone can detect is somewhere between 10,000 and well over 100 billion or even more. Some have estimated over 1 trillion smells that a human can detect with his olfactory sense. It is one of the most mysterious and underrated senses that we have in our human body. It is said that our sense of smell is strongly related, more than any others, to our memories. It is with our sense of smell that we discern particular molecules in the air among thousands of others and can discern one over another in the midst of them all. With it, sommeliers are largely able to blindly determine 
where a particular bottle of wine is made and the grape from which that wine came. With it, tracking dogs are able to pick out particular scents among thousands and a particular person in the midst of thousands and for miles track that particular person. Wherever we go, we leave a scent behind us, which is uniquely our own. And in the passage before us, we are called the fragrance of Christ. Probably more than most of our other senses, people are willing to spend a lot of money on their scent. (laughs) We might spend a couple of hundred dollars for glasses, maybe even a couple of thousand for LASIK surgery, but people will spend a lot of money for perfumes and for fragrances. Fragrance is something that has uh, spoken of in the scripture on several occasions, including the woman who broke that very costly perfume and poured it out upon Jesus, preparing him for his death. But we are called in a similar way to these particular scents that we each have to have this unique smell of Christ. We carry with us, wherever we go, the the scent, the fragrance of Christ, Paul calls it here like a perfume, a fragrance. That fragrance is a testimony that testifies we have been in the presence of God and he now goes with us wherever we go. And there's a trail that gets left behind so that the knowledge of God goes wherever we go. There's a testimony aspect that goes here. That's why it's even called the fragrance and the knowledge of God here in the earlier portion. Wherever we go, we leave this scent behind and we have a responsibility to consider this matter in our own lives because as Habakkuk 2.14 says that for the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters do cover the sea, the way that the knowledge of the glory of God will then get there is through his people in Christ. This morning I want to preach to you on the Christian being a sweet-smelling savor. For us to understand what Paul is at least referencing here and how he's applying that to us as Christians, the fragrance that Paul is referring to here, first of all, we need to consider is the sacrifice of the sweet savor offering that is given to us throughout the scriptures, but particularly delineated for us in Leviticus. Leviticus details for us five types of sacrifices which can be categorized in two major categories. J. Barton Payne in his Old Testament theology classifies those two categories which these five sacrifices will fit, one as the sweet-smelling sacrifice or offering, And the second category is the guilt offering. In each of those categories now, there's something unique about each of those sacrifices that testify something of Christ and also our life hidden together with him. In that second category of the guilt offering, it speaks of the sin offering, 
which for some specific sin, some parts of that offering were burned outside the camp. So the sin is shown to be taken outside of the camp and done away with. It no longer is resident in our home, in our place of dwelling. We know that Christ was taken outside of Jerusalem in picture of and fulfillment of this sin offering. Another one of those offerings in the guilt offering was the trespass offering. And it's the same as a sin offering, but it also has a repayment or a restitution to the party that was wronged. Now, the first category of offering, which has three particular offerings in it, is the one that Paul is actually focusing on, and that is the sweet savor offering. And the sweet savor offering has three main categories. The burnt offering, which is where the sacrificial animal is wholly burnt upon the altar. The meal offering, which was a non-bloody offering, and it was always accompanied by these other bloody sacrifices. Oftentimes it was put upon the, the burnt offering. And then the peace offering, where parts of that were eaten by the offerer himself. Now the sweet-smelling offerings were that which the smoke arises from the altar, and it's said to be a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. Understanding that God didn't have body parts like us, the Scripture often speaks in these anthropomorphic language, in the likeness of a human, so that we can understand some aspect of what he is telling us. Each of these sacrifices shows a particular aspect of the work of Christ that he fulfilled in his life and work here upon the earth and upon the death of the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And it's these sweet savor offerings that Paul now links to us as we carry the fragrance of Christ, when that odor continues to diffuse out into the world wherever we go, that he speaks of us as emanating the fragrance of Christ unto God and in the presence of other people. So what does this all mean, and how does that work? And to understand how this works, we have to understand two things. Number one, how did Christ fulfill these sacrifices? And number two, how a Christian's conversion unites him to Christ so that what is true for Christ is true for the Christian. We have to understand those two things. And just for a very quick overview here, let's consider, first of all, how Christ fulfills those sacrifices. As we think about... The, the theology of Leviticus showing us the distinction between that which is common and that which is holy, and between the things that are clean and unclean, it gives us instruction regarding the sacrificial system of God. There are five main steps when someone was to bring a sacrifice before God. Let's rehearse those very quickly because I think it's notable. When someone was to bring a sacrifice to God, first of all, a sacrificial animal had to be chosen according to God's instruction. That would identify that the offer who seeks to be reconciled together with God needed the atonement and forgiveness of sins, and he recognizes that, and he comes to God on God's terms. 
He desires this. Number two, the sacrificial animal that was then chosen was brought before the priest and the offerer then lays his hands on the sacrificial animal. And as the offerer lays his hands on the head of the animal, it is showing a conveyance of the offerer's sin to the innocent lamb that would take its place and give its life for the sinner. It is showing the substitutionary atonement. It is picturing this transfer of one, the sinner, and all of his sins to be imputed upon the innocent victim who would then give his life as a substitute for sinner. The third step would then be that the offerer himself would slay the animal. There was an identification with that very slaughter, with the one whose sin required it. And that animal was to die, and his blood was to be spilt. The life was in the blood. And so the blood became very important. The offer took the animal's life. And as the blood is being let out of the animal, then fourthly, the priest would take that blood and he would capture that blood and then he would manipulate it upon the altar of God. As God looks down at sinful man and he, his wrath burns against the sin and the rebellion that we all inherit from Adam and that we actually experience and cause... God is angry at the sinner, and we need God to remove his wrath from us. And as we come in the, on God's terms, and we identify with the innocence of this victim who will then take our place, and the life that was shed for us, now the price of that redemption for us is in the blood, in the life. And that blood then comes between God and the offerer. And as God looks down upon his holy and righteous law that condemns us, what he sees there instead is the blood that covers it, the blood of innocent and righteous victim. And so this innocent and righteous sacrificial animal, if it were, is now conveyed to the offerer so that God counts the offerer as righteous while his wrath is being poured out unto death upon the innocent victim. Then certain parts, number five, were then taken from that sacrificial animal, and the priest would cut it up, and certain parts of that would be burned upon the altar, or in some cases, all of it would be burned upon the altar. In the case of the guilt offering, certain parts of the body were then taken outside the camp, showing the removal of sin now from our presence in the case of the peace offering, some of those parts of the body would then be roasted in fire and eaten by the offerer himself, symbolizing the peace meal. And that's where we get the term peace offering. In that day, when enemies were estranged from each other, and yet when peace and reconciliation came between two of those who were at, at odds with one another, they sealed that new friendship with a meal. And they sat down together in what is considered a reconciliation meal. And they would demonstrate in that coming together that now there is peace between us where there was enmity before. God then brings that whole imagery there into bear in the peace offering. 
And that is why meals and feasting for us come together with theological importance. The burning of parts of the altar was a manner in which God was showing in our way that he is eating. In fact, there are some references where the parts that were being burned up demonstrate that God was eating. And he eats with us as the altar is burning the parts and as the offer is also eating some of the parts that are roasted in the fire. It is showing us dining with God. As we are eating down and consuming, so God is burning up and consuming, but yet we are dining with God in this particular and unusual way. And like any good kitchen that has aromas that precede it, this aroma goes out into the surrounding area and you can see and, or you can sense with your smell that which is being cooked in the kitchen. And in God, if you will, this aroma of the kitchen is now coming up into his nostrils, which is a good and pleasing smell to our God. As we walk down the streets in Europe and we smell freshly baked bread going on, it tends to draw us to the bakeries and draw us to the pastry shops in such the same way as when this comes up to God and we have peace with God, then there is a drawing of this fragrance that diffuses around us that brings others to acknowledge its goodness. Now, all of these aspects were pictured in this sacrificial animal whose reality would become in Christ himself. All of this would be accomplished in Christ. And as we see him as the Lamb of God, we then confess our sins to him. We acknowledge that we are sinners. And as we, in a metaphorical way, we put our hands on the Lamb, we come to Christ, knowing that he is the perfect land. We come to God on his terms. We feel that we must be reconciled to God because we know that our sins have caused us to be at enmity with him. And so we have need for Christ and for his sacrificial, atoning sacrifice. We have to come to see that we, we need this, we desire this, and that he takes all of our sins and then... All of those sins are then laid to bear and put to death upon the cross. As he takes it outside of the city, it has never become a part of our dwelling anymore in that permanent sense. His blood is that which comes between God and us, so that when God looks down upon us, he sees the blood of his Son, and if we are his then what he accepts with the Son, he accepts with us. His anger is appeased, he accepts us, and he invites us to a meal of peace. It is only after that propitiatory sacrifice has been given and the parts have been burned and the blood has been manipulated upon the altar, does that meal then take place. It's at the very end. So knowing that we have been reconciled together with God, that's how Christ fulfills those sacrificial pictures. Now how does a Christian's conversion then 
unite them to Christ in the way that what is true for Christ becomes true for the believer. And that's something of which this passage then speaks of as we are being sanctified, the very fragrance of Christ and the sweet-smelling aroma follows us wherever we go. So let's think about some of those details in just a moment. When a sinner is converted to Christ, he becomes a new creature. He becomes a new human altogether. His heart has been changed so that he is genuinely interested in the things of God, whereas before he might have been superficially interested or he might not have been interested at all, but he is now genuinely interested in the things of God. This change is so radical in a person's life that it completely changes his interest, it changes his values, it changes the way he thinks, it changes his desires, and it changes the way he lives. So different does the man become that he is considered and called in the scriptures a new man. He has a new nature altogether. And while all the changes that will take place in that man do not happen all at one time, there is something instantaneous that happens at the very time of conversion that changes him on the inside. It is a new principle of life that has been given into his heart that will forever change him. That's called regeneration. It's the work of the Spirit. It is a grace of God that he gives us regeneration It's not something that we can give ourselves, do for ourselves, gain for ourselves. It truly is completely in the hands of God for those with whom he will regenerate and for those whom he will pass by. Out of regeneration, there is a fruit that is born because the fruit of the Spirit is always inseparable to his work of regeneration. It begins producing the fruit in us of love, love for God. And joy and peace with God and with one another and long-suffering. And, but also faith is one of the fruit that comes. And with that faith now active, it lays hold on the promises of God whereby we then are justified by our faith, which is still a grace of God. Now a change begins to happen in a person's life where the old life of sin and that old man is being put to death And that old selfishness and self-centeredness of that old man turns to Christ and lives for the glory of God, no matter what the cost. When one does this and he puts his faith in Christ and his work, trusting in everything that God has said in his word, that believer now goes down a pathway that God has directed for him. And everything becomes different and changed. And at the moment a believer savingly trusts in Christ, that is the moment he is united together with Christ. And there are so many blessings that come out of this unified life that we have with Christ that uh, we could be speaking on it for the rest of our earthly lives and still not understand the depths and the riches and the blessings of what we have with our lives united together with Christ. We are placed into Christ. And that is why John, through his gospel, says when we believe in him, it literally is believing into Jesus that we believe savingly. 
So the life and the work of Christ are united together to us inseparably. We are justified in the sight of God, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of Christ and his righteousness alone, but by being united together with him. As God looks down upon us, he sees his son and accepts us in the beloved. The law's demands, which are upon us and demands complete and perfect obedience, are now, on the basis of Christ's obedience, fully fulfilled. And then the sin which had dominion over us and that we were under its bondage so that we could not help but to sin. And this old man, no longer does that sin have dominion over us, but united together with Christ, we have been raised together in his likeness so that sin no longer has that strength. It no longer has the bondage. It no longer has the power. That's why speaking about our lives united together with Christ, Paul would say in Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. It's the power that sin had over us that we are now free from so that we become instruments of righteousness. Colossians 3, Paul would say it this way, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Paul would say of his own self in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he says, if you're Christ, your life is no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. The price of his own blood. By virtue of our lives, now being united together with Christ, we share in his life, we share in his works, and we even share in some way when he was crucified and when he was resurrected, we, by union with him, we have been crucified with him and raised up in his resurrection to walk in a new life. We are new creatures, we are a new humanity if we have the Spirit in Christ. So when Paul was speaking in this chapter about the fragrance of Christ, he's referring to the sweet-smelling aroma of the smoke that ascends from the burnt offering upward to God, that offering which is well-pleasing to his olfactory sense, if I could speak it in human terms. And there is an aspect in which we now share in this and why we ourselves emanate this fragrance of Christ and the knowledge of God wherever we go. Now the effects of this fragrance are given to us in verses 15 and 16 where he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That means in, 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 in the presence of everybody, you're either one of those who are being saved or you're one of those who are perishing. 
Both of those words, by the way, are in the present active tense, meaning that we as Christians are being saved. Uh, This is one of those important passages to understand when salvation, we speak of salvation, it speaks about it in terms of past, present, and future. In the past, we've been regenerated and, and therefore justified by faith. That's a past tense. But we are being saved as the sanctification that we consider, and we will be saved as the glorification when it all is cons- as the consummation. But for those who are being saved from our sins today, because we are not yet glorified, because we are not yet perfected, we are being saved. And there is something that is a fresh and pleasing aroma, a fragrance, a perfume of Christ, if you will. And that is that which diffuses from all of us to one another. It's a pleasing thing. But we also diffuse this wherever we go, even in the presence of those who are perishing, those who do not know Christ, those who are on their way to condemnation and hell. Uh, Yet they still, by the mercy of God, are here, and there is still time for them to repent of their sins. But some of them have already turned their hearts in such a strong way that they will not repent. And so our presence among them is repulsive. Those who are perishing will recoil at our lives. It's a stench to them like burning flesh upon a fire. They do not share in the values of God, therefore they do not share in what we now newly value. As Paul would go on in chapter 3 where he would say, we are now written epistles to the world. The written epistle, which is now the law of God and Christ written upon our heart, testifies of Christ and his gospel and the changing power of God in me, and that testifies and it speaks to everyone around me. That's why each one of us has a great responsibility to be a good testimony I sometimes get into conversations with people about how they conduct their lives and how they live their lives and the appearance of others in the world, and, and they, want to, uh, they want to just limit that down to was this sin or not sin. And it's so much of a bigger picture than that because is it a good testimony of Christ or is it not a good testimony of Christ? Is it drawing people to him? Is the fragrance diffusing in a strong way so that people can smell the values and the goodness and the grace of God in in you? Or is that being clouded in some way in which we live? See, our lives are written epistles. It's now that which will either draw people closer to him or it will cause other people to repel. And if we're being faithful to walking in the gospel with the Lord, it will have one of those two effects upon people. If you go knock on somebody's door and you give them the gospel and they slam the door in your face and they are recoiled at the thought of what you just stood for, don't take it personally. It's Christ that they are taking to heart. It is Christ that they are rejecting. Well, you share in the sufferings of Christ, even his rejection in that, uh, in, in that recoiling of those things. And so as you take the fragrance of Christ, 
You will be a, a repulsive to some people, but you will also be something that is a sweet savor of a fragrance to other people. But one thing is true, if you're faithfully living for Christ, the gospel living out in you will never leave the man the saying. See, there's no middle ground here. And the gospel never leaves anybody where it finds him. It will always affect a person. It will either draw him further away from Christ or it will draw him closer to Christ, but it will never just leave him where he was. And now how does my life and how does your life work in such a way that as I'm living faithfully, it is that which has the salt and the light in, to this world that is perishing, and yet becomes that which is encouraging and something beautiful and something to behold and smell to those who are being saved. I want to go back and just consider those three sacrifices in the realm of those sweet-smelling savor sacrifices and, and just look here for just a moment as we think about each one of those three that is this fragrance that diffuses into the world around us that wafts over into each other's lives here, which should be a pleasing thing. First of all is the burnt offering. The burnt offering is a, a, in the category of the sweet savor offering where the entirety of the animal is burned upon the altar. It symbolizes that the entirety of the flesh and of the old man must be completely consumed. The Christian is one who is all in. The old man must be completely put to death. You can't enjoy the things of the old man and enjoy the things of God and like a smorgasbord, pick and choose what you like. No, the old man has to be completely dead. To be even a disciple of Jesus, Jesus would say this in Luke 9 where he says, If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. The denying of themselves is that sacrifice of the old man, and the taking up of the cross is an emblem of the death that he was about to die in the flesh. And we follow him. And then he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will Save it. The old man with his deeds, his character, his appetites, his values, his desires must be completely put to death, completely consumed, if you will. Is that's the picture of that burnt offering, and that is a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. This change in our lives as we totally consecrate our lives to God and putting off the old man with his deeds and putting on the new man renewed in Christ becomes very evident to those around us because the gospel does not leave a man where it finds him. It begins to change him. It becomes convicting and condemning to those who are perishing because they hate it. But it's a source of encouragement and strength to those who are being saved and they are positively changed by it. The burnt offering is a sacrifice that was the daily and the morning sacrifice that was given every morning and every evening that encapsulates the entirety of day and night. And it shows that in these 
the, the entirety of man, for the entirety of life, 24-7 is God's. Day in and day out, all night, every day, in all of life, it is an all-comprehensive offering to God. Now, your sanctification is that which pleases God. And yet, as you grow in holiness in your own life, it is that also a means of grace for others who are being saved to be sanctified together with you. Our lives are not our own. They have been bought with the very high price of the blood of Jesus. So glorify God in your body, the scripture would say. Every time you resist sin, in that moment, every time you make a right choice for righteousness, to do a good deed in the name of Christ, the fragrance of Christ is just diffused in that situation as though one just stoked the flames and the smoke began to roar. That is pleasing to God. It's never benign. Those little decisions always have an effect. When this old sinful flesh, which is characterized by sinfulness and and selfishness and, and pride and envy and hatreds and anger and wrath and immorality and, and all of those characteristics of the works of the flesh with unkindness and ugliness, when it is all burned up and consumed day in and day out, and in its place a new, mild, meek man in Christ Characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, that is an aroma that is pleasing to God and that others will learn of the knowledge of God from that aroma. Now, some will be recoiled by it. That's okay. Others will be drawn to it, and that's glorious. But you live faithfully to God, and you let him make of it what he will to those who are being saved even to those who are perishing. The second of those sweet-smelling, savoring sacrifices is the meal offering. It was a non-bloody offering, and it was that which accompanies other offerings. It had to literally be put upon uh, the burnt offering, if you will, or another offering in order to be consumed so that that would then go up to be a sweet smell. So we have a bread meal offering that was offered upon the fire of the altar, and that smoke would be well-pleasing to God as well. It is interesting, as, as Jeffrey Myers took in his book and he begins to uh, look at the patterns of, of a covenant renewal service, he follows some of the patterns of the sacrificial system so that what he would look at right now is happening in the preaching of the word is, is analogous to the burnt offering. And why he puts the offering, the ties of offering, that is, after the sermon because the bread offering has to go upon the burnt offering to be consumed up into the presence of God. So the meal offering always has to come after the burnt offering because it is the fire there that makes it then consumable. 
And, and so he places an offering as we celebrate our tithes and offerings in that same kind of pattern. Uh, you, you may agree or disagree with his, his model, but that is something to be noted of. But the more important thing here is to note what is that meal offering symbolize? Well, the bread, when it's freshly taken out of the oven... It's got a, a beautiful aroma to it, does it not? Uh, the plows would know this. And, and that, that bread, you, there's something about hot bread. You want to eat hot bread. And you want to eat it right when it comes out of the oven. And, and you want to smother it with butter. <laughs> right, Claire? Yeah. And you want to just have it all right then. And, and here we have bread, which is really a symbol of our entire consecrated lives and all of our substance. And boy, that aroma sure smells good. When we are fully consecrated before God and we've given everything to God, our, our husbands and our wives and our, 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 our courting people and, and all of our cars and our houses and, and everything that he has given to us, we have given it all back to him and say, God, you own it all. It's all yours. Use my life and all my substance for your glory. Boy, that bread has that aroma that comes up into the nostrils of God that is such a sweet savor and it oozes over into the lives of other people that they can see a person completely sold out for Christ. And, and, and this is day in and day out. Yeah, we might slip and we might have to renew those vows and that commitment with Christ. But this bread offering, this is which God has given us, see? It's, it's that our sustenance and our, that which symbolizes our daily living. And, and then as we dedicate everything we have to the Lord, it is like our lives that we have now given to him in full, yielding up everything we own to him because it is really his gift to us, and we don't get enamored so much with the gift as the giver. And that's the point that God wants us. So therefore, if we are like this, he would go on to tell us in Matthew 6, you don't have to worry about your food or what clothes you're going to put on or where you're going to live. If you but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness with this dedication of life, all these other things will be taken care of. We know that God's going to provide for us. And there's great comfort in that. There's great peace in that. This complete daily consecrated to, to, to God and all these things that we have just keeps life in perspective. God owns it all. This is the bread offering. We give us this day, Lord, our day. Where does our daily bread come from? It comes from God. It is our recognition and trust in him when we give it back to him. And this is the denying of ourself daily and picking up our cross to follow him, knowing that this fragrance that comes out of the oven of God, <laughs> that comes out of the bakery of God, is just going to be pleasing in his sight and, and, and as others as well. And then the third the offering that we have, the sweet-smelling savor, is that peace offering. What makes the peace offering unique is after the blood has been manipulated upon the altar, then an additional step is that the offerer then takes some of that roasted in the fire and sits down with God and they eat together to symbolize that 
where they were at enmity, now they are at peace and they seal it with a peace meal. When we eat with God, as we will in a moment, we eat knowing that we have peace with him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood has been shed upon the cross, and that is why when we come to the table today, there is no blood here. There is bread and wine. The blood has been shed once and for all. That atoning work has been completed, and now we have peace with God as we lay our faith upon it, as we trust in him, as we come to his table knowing that we are in union with Christ, inseparably in union with him. We are also in union with one another. And that's why this meal of the Lord's table is called communion. This is this peace offering which has been exhibited in even now today, this Lord's table, is a communion with God's people as one with Christ himself, our host. And the people of God in one are united together with Christ, making them inseparably united one to another. And this is feasting at its finest. When we are reconciled together with God, he invites us to his table to sit and dine with him. And that's why one of the greatest sins of partaking this table is when people come disunited and in uncommunion and and, and, and not at peace and not reconciled with one another. But when we are in that right spirit and unified in Christ and we partake rightly, examining ourselves and discerning the Lord's body, then that fragrance flows. And it is pleasing to God, and it is pleasing to those who are being saved. Our fellowship with God, our desire to be at peace with Him is a a sweet-smelling aroma. That's why the characteristic of the kingdom is, blessed are the peacemakers. Our changed lives testify to others of the knowledge of God wherever we go as we live faithfully in Christ. Your sanctification is important. Your continued growth and your change in character, which is well-pleasing to God, is even commanded as the will of God. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, the Scripture says. So go and live your lives this week in a way that is well-pleasing to God, that is a sanctifying influence upon those who are being saved, and make your life count even if it causes people to recoil against the God that you love. You are being salt and light. Be faithful. Leave the results to God because you are a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, a written epistle, which is written upon your heart, a letter of God to the world around you. Be faithful with that word. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would energize us this week to think about our sanctification and all those little decisions that we make each day of our lives. We pray that you would give us the power of the Spirit to make them righteously and well to your glory to be a sweet-smelling savor, a fragrance of the knowledge of God, the fragrance of Christ himself, which is oozing and diffusing through us into the world around us. How pleasant it is, O Lord, to smell those aromas 
of those who are being saved and through whom you are working in this way. Use us, Lord, to be a testimony of Christ in a faithful manner that where we go, we would take this epistle that you have written upon our hearts, giving us a new heart to live the law of God, to love the law of God in the power of the Spirit, knowing it has been completely fulfilled in Christ. We now no longer under the dominion of sin, but have the power to live righteously according to your truth. We pray you would sanctify this, us in this word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.